1925, Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett, then considered a world-class explorer, and today considered as the original inspiration for Indiana Jones, began what was to be his last journey into the Brazilian jungle in search of Z, an ancient lost city that he believed existed somewhere in the uncharted depths of the Amazon. To give you an idea of how large and how dense the Amazon jungle is, picture it in your global imagination as being roughly the same size as the continental United States. Huge! And still mostly unexplored today. And inhabited by tribes that still carry a grudge for the Spanish explorers that brought death and disease to their remote jungle outposts as far back as the 16th century as well as one of the most dangerous toxic mixture of man-killing critters and disease-carrying mosquitoes ever known to man. The British-born explorer and adventurer expected to make archaeological history locating an ancient city, not lined with streets of gold like the fabled El Dorado, but a city that would prove once and for all that a large, flourishing civilization once existed without the influence of Europeans in what most of the civilized world considered to be the ultimate global backwoods of civilization. It was his passion and his reason for living in his later years, but a passion that would carry him to his death. Colonel Percy Harrington's dreams and the dreams of millions of people who had anxiously awaited each newspaper account of his latest venture into the depths of the Amazon were to come crashing down with a jarring suddenness when, following a final dispatch on May 29, 1925, he and his two companions, one of them his son, the other his son's friend, vanished without a trace. Their disappearance inspired rampant speculation, and, according to some, many would-be rescuers later died while trying to hunt down evidence of their fate. There were books. There was a brilliant movie put together by executive producer Brad Pitt. There have been countless articles and a number of theories, some speculating that Buona Percy lived for years as king of a remote tribe after his disappearance and that he and his son spawned dozens of blue-eyed natives. All the stuff that makes for a good history mystery. And that's what we do best. More than 90 years after the Fawcett expedition dropped off the map, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries is going to take you down the Amazon River for a look back at one of the great exploration mysteries of the 20th century, the lost city of Z. With his steely blue eyes, manicured beard, and trademark Stetson hat, Colonel Percy Fawcett looked like the quintessential swashbuckling adventurer. He had received his early education at Newton Abbott Proprietary College, and his father, Edward Boyd Fawcett, had been born in British-occupied India and was a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, all of which provided a rich upbringing in science and exploration for Percy and his elder brother, Edward Douglas, who was a mountain climber, eastern occultist, and author of popular adventure novels, 
Fawcett attended the Royal Military Academy Woolwich as a cadet and was soon commissioned as a lieutenant in the Royal Artillery in July of 1886, receiving a promotion to captain 13 years later in 1897. He would later serve in Ceylon, where he met his future wife, Nina Agnes Patterson, whom he married in January of 1901. It was also in Ceylon that his older brother introduced Percy to Madame Blavatsky, then the head of what was called the Theosophy Movement. She was a well-known psychic and spiritualist, and her teachings would influence a number of people worldwide, including Gandhi, Thomas Edison, and Arthur Conan Doyle. Blavatsky taught that enlightened master priests delivered psychic messages to help mankind, and those priests lived in various hidden cities around the world, including Tibet, and in South America. He would never forget her teachings, which both he and his wife Nina enjoyed learning. They had two sons, Jack and Brian, and one daughter, Joan. That same year, he joined the Royal Geographic Society in order to study surveying and map-making, two skills which would lead him to exploration, and skills which were highly sought out by British intelligence, as they made an excellent cover for agents. Percy soon found himself working for the British Secret Service in North Africa, where he spent most of his time spying on the Sultan of Morocco, before receiving a promotion to Major in 1905. Military life was proving to be boring for Fawcett, and he was longing for adventure and exploration. It was during this time that he became friends with authors H. Ryder Haggard, whose adventure story King Solomon's Mines had become wildly popular, and Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, who later used Fawcett's Amazonian field reports as the inspiration for the novel The Lost World, which, many years later, became the inspiration for Jurassic Park. The Amazon, the largest remote jungle region in the world, and previously mentioned roughly the same size as mainland United States, and still holding in excess of 100 tribes who purposely avoid contact with outsiders for fear of disease or enslavement, having learned from the fate of other tribes which were decimated by contact with Europeans, has captured the imagination of adventurers and dreamers for centuries. A Spanish explorer named Carvajal took an expedition down the main course of the Amazon River in 1491 and reported that there were millions of people living there, that they had created a civilization out of the jungle. That expedition spawned rumors of a lost city of gold called El Dorado, which brought more Spanish explorers, who brought missionaries, disease, and death in their wake and left with no riches to show for their efforts. Only stories of head-hunting cannibals, strange animals, giant snakes, insects that could kill, and in some cases, prehistoric monsters. As the centuries passed, many more explorers followed. No more reports of civilization followed, however. Only stories of separate tribes of often fierce peoples, and many of those explorers never returned, having succumbed to malaria, insect bites that turned deadly, poisonous snakes, madness, or attacks. By the 20th century, El Dorado had been declared a myth. There was no city of gold. But with the advent of the Victorian age of exploration, the ability of newspapers to reach a world audience, and the airplane, the world began to appear a little smaller, and explorations were financed to finally conquer the unknown regions of the Poles, of Africa, of islands like New Guinea, and 
of South America. And thus it was in 1906 when 39-year-old Percy Fawcett, cartologist, British military officer, and explorer, was chosen to unlock the secrets of South America and map out a jungle area that comprised the border of Brazil and Bolivia at the bequest of the Royal Geographic Society. This was almost as big a deal in 1906 as Neil Armstrong's voyage to the moon 63 years later. It also illustrates just how much progress we've made in so few years. It's mind-boggling. The Society had been commissioned to map the area as a third party unbiased by local national interests. Colonialism was in full swing in South America, as England, Germany, the Netherlands, and a host of other countries were vying for the rights and property needed in order to establish rubber plantations and mines and lumber operations, whatever they could claim as booty from the remote jungle land. Fawcett arrived in La Paz, Bolivia in June 1907, and whilst on that expedition, he claimed to have seen and shot a 62-foot-long giant anaconda, a claim for which he was ridiculed by scientists. But many in the know say that Fawcett wasn't the kind of guy who exaggerated. Even today, the largest anaconda on record, though, is 33 feet long. That size still proven fully capable of bringing down and killing an adult elephant. A 62-foot-long anaconda may sound like the stuff of nightmares, but according to Lieutenant Colonel Percy Fawcett, this is precisely what he and his exploration team encountered in western Brazil in 1907 while voyaging by canoe along the Rio Abuna, near to its confluence with the Rio Negro. Uncomfortably close to Fawcett's canoe, several feet of broad, powerful, undulating, serpentine coils and a huge triangular head rose up above the surface of the river, and as he and his team watched in horror, a truly colossal anaconda began emerging onto the riverbank. Greatly alarmed by the threat posed to his team by this limbless leviathan, Fawcett shot the snake dead, and then proceeded to measure its gargantuan form. To his amazement, he discovered that the portion of its body that had emerged from the water prior to being shot was 45 feet long and the portion remaining in the water was 17 feet, thereby adding up to a grand total of 62 feet. Needless to say, however, Fawcett and his team had no means of transporting the immensely heavy, rapidly decomposing 62-foot carcass back to civilization. Consequently, his claims concerning its size still remain unconfirmed, and Fawcett himself famously vanished in the Brazilian jungle in 1925, never to be seen again. There are some reports from early explorers of the South American jungles seeing giant anacondas up to 60 feet long, and some of the native peoples have reported seeing anacondas up to 50 feet long, but these reports still remain unverified. Historian Mike Dash writes of claims of still larger anacondas, alleged to be as long as 98 feet to 148 feet. Some of the sightings supported with photos, although the photos lack scale. Dash notes that if a 50 to 60 foot anaconda strains credulity, Fawcett also reported other mysterious animals unknown to zoology, such as a small cat-like dog about the size of a foxhound, which he claimed to have seen twice or the giant Apazuaca spider. The Apazuaca was a kind of black tarantula, so large that a plate would scarcely cover it. 
This monster lowers itself down at night on the sleepers beneath, and its bite means death, with the symptoms being their bodies turned black from the action of the horrible poison. On that first expedition in 1907, Fawcett also saw and reported a reptile that he believed to be a diplodocus in the Benai swamps of Madre de Dios. According to author and modern-day explorer Leonard E. Clark in his book The Rivers Ran East, many of the tribes east of the Yucayale confirmed this belief. The president of Bolivia, according to a circa 1900 article in the Scientific American, asked that the dried body of a 39-foot-long monster which had been shot be sent to him for examination. His head resembled the head of a dog. The legs were short and ending with formidable claws. The legs and abdomen sported a kind of scale armor, and its entire back was protected by a thicker armor. The neck was long and the belly dragged on the ground. If you're picturing a dragon, you'd be close. Even stranger, it had two heads. So the next time you read the old tale about the two-headed dragon, give it a second thought. In his book, Exploration Fawcett, Fawcett wrote, There are snakes and insects unknown to scientists and in the forests of the Medidi. Some mysterious and enormous beast has frequently been disturbed in the swamps, possibly a primeval monster like those reported in other parts of the continent. Certainly tracks have been found belonging to no known animal, huge tracks, far greater than could have been made by any species that we know of. To add to this, a strange dinosaur-like image has been discovered adorning the side of a Peruvian water bottle, which has been dated back to 200 A.D. Fawcett made seven expeditions between 1906 and 1924. He was mostly amicable with the locals through gifts, patience, and courteous behavior. He had a strict policy of not showing any threat upon meeting natives. His object was to show them by appearance and action that he would do them no harm. In one instance, he and his men were traveling up a narrow river in canoes when they were suddenly attacked with arrows flying from both sides. They were being shot with enough force to penetrate the sides of the canoe, so the men were concerned for their lives. But instead of pulling his gun, Fawcett began to play a small accordion. It was a risky choice, but it worked. The attack stopped. The natives were curious to see how he was making the music. And they made friends. Cautious friends, yes, but friends enough to grant Fawcett and his men free access ahead on the river. He was also a hard driver of himself and the men accompanying him. In 1908, he traced the source of the Rio Verde in Brazil, and in 1910 made a journey to Heath River on the border between Peru and Bolivia to find its source, having retired from the British Army on January 19th of that year. After a 1913 expedition, he supposedly claimed to have seen dogs with double noses. These have since been cataloged as double-nosed Andean tiger hounds. Based on documentary research, Fawcett had by 1914 formulated ideas about a lost city he named Z, his British pronunciation Zed, somewhere in the Mato Grosso region of Brazil. He theorized that a complex civilization once existed in the Amazon region and that isolated ruins may have survived. Fawcett also found a document known as Manuscript 512, written after explorations made in the Certeo of the state of Bahia and housed at the National Library of Rio de Janeiro. 
It is believed to be written by Portuguese fortune hunter Joao da Silva Huimeres, who wrote that in 1753 he had discovered the ruins of an ancient city that contained arches, a statue, and a temple with hieroglyphics. The city is described in great detail without providing a specific location. This city became a secondary destination for Fawcett, after Z, but he felt the two were attached. Here is a portion of the text from Manuscript 512, which, you will see, would be enough to fire up the imagination of any would-be explorer. Imagine what Fawcett must have felt as he opened this partially worm-eaten old document which had been stored away and set aside and forgotten for 150 years. Translated, it reads, Historical relation of a hidden and great city of ancient date, without inhabitants, that was discovered in the year 1753. The story begins in 1743, when Francisco Raposo led an expedition into the jungles of the Amazon basin in search of clues to the lost Murabeca mines. Years later, they happened upon a mountain range of glistening gemstones, beginning in the year 1754. And here's where we begin with the manuscript. After long and wearisome wanderings, incited by the insatiable lust for gold, an almost lost cordillera of mountains, so high that they drew near the ethereal region and served as a throne of the winds, under the stars, their luster from afar excited our wonder and admiration principally when the sun shining on them turned to fires the crystals of which the rocks were composed. The view was so beautiful that none could take their eyes from the reflections. It began to rain before we came near enough to take note of the crystalline marbles. And we saw above, the spectacle was bare and sterile rocks. The waters precipitated themselves from the heights, foaming white, like snow, struck and turned to fire by the rays of the sun, like thunderbolts. Delighted by the pleasing vistas of that, blended, shining and glittering, of the waters and the tranquility of the day or weather, we determined to investigate those prodigious marvels of nature spread out before us at the foot of the mountains, without hindrance of forests or rivers that would make it difficult for us to cross them. But when we walked round the foot of the Cordillera, we found no open way or pass into the recesses of these Alps and Pyrenees of Brazil. So there resulted for us, from this disappointment, an inexplicable sadness. We grew weary and intended to retrace our steps the next day when it came to pass that one of our negroes, gathering dried sticks, saw a white deer, and by that accident, as it fled away, he discovered a road between two sierras that appeared to have been made by man and not the work of nature. We were made joyful by this discovery, and we started to ascend the road, but found a great boulder that had fallen and broken all to pieces at a spot where, we judged, a paved way had been violently upheaved in some far-off day. We spent a good three hours in the ascent of that ancient road, being fascinated by the crystals, at which we marveled, as they blazed and scintillated in many flashing colors from the rocks. On the summit of the pass through the mountain, we came to a halt, thence spread out before our eyes. We saw in the open plain greater spectacles for our vision of admiration and wonder. At the distance of about a league, as we judged, we saw a great city, and we estimated, by the extent and sight of it, that it must be some city of the court of Brazil. We had once descended the road towards this valley, but with great caution, two days we waited, wondering whether to send out scouts, for the end we longed for, and all alone we waited till daybreak, 
in great doubt and confused perplexity of mind, trying to guess if the city had any people in it, but it became clear to us there were no inhabitants. An Indian of our Bandurantes determined, after two days of hesitation, to risk his life in scouting by way of precaution, but he returned, amazing us by affirming he had met no one, nor could discover footsteps or traces of any person whatever. This so confounded us that we could not believe we saw dwellings or buildings, and so all the scouts in a body followed in the steps of the Indian. They now saw for themselves that it was true the great city was uninhabited. We all, therefore, now decided to enter the place, our arms ready for instant use, at daybreak. At our entry we met none to bar our way, and we encountered no other road except the one which led to the dead city. This we entered under three arches of great height, the middle arch being the greatest, and the two of the sides being but small. Under the great and principal arch we made out letters, which we could not copy, owing to their great height above the ground. Behind was a street as wide as the three arches, with, here and there, houses of very large size, whose facades of sculptured stone, already blackened with age. We went, with fear and trembling, into some of the houses, and in none did we find vestiges of furniture or movable objects by which, or whose use, we might guess at the sort of people who had dwelt therein. The houses were all dark in the interior, and hardly could the light of day penetrate, even at its dimmest, and as the vaults gave back the echoes of our speech, the sound of our voices terrified us. We went on into the strange city. We came on a street of great length, and a well-set-out plaza. Besides, in it, and in the middle of the plaza, a column of black stone of extraordinary, on whose summit was the statue of a man, not a god or a demigod, with a hand on the left hip and right arm outstretched, pointing with the index finger to the north pole and each corner of the said plaza is an obelisk like those among the Romans, but now badly damaged, and cleft as by thunderbolts. On the right side of the plaza is a superb building, as it were the principal townhouse of some great lord of the land. There is a great hall at the entrance, but still being awed and afraid, not all of us entered in the house, being the bats were so numerous that they fluttered in swarms round the faces of our people, and made so much noise, that it was astonishing. Above the principal portico of the street is a figure in half-relief, cut out of the same stone, and naked from the waist upward, crowned with laurel, representing a person of youthful years, without beard, with a girdle around him, and an undergarment open in front at the waist. Underneath the shield of this figure are certain characters, now badly defaced by time, but we made out the following. And there the manuscript shows characters that to us would resemble a capital K, a capital U, something like a capital P, something like a Roman numeral 1, and the fifth just a symbol. It looks like a V standing on its side. On the left side of the plaza is another totally ruined building, and the vestiges remaining well show that it was a temple because of the still standing side of its magnificent facade and certain naves of stone standing entire. It covers much ground, and in the ruined halls are seen works of beauty, with other statues of portraits inlaid in the stone, with crosses of various shapes, curves, arches, and many other figures that would take too long to describe here. Beyond this building, a great part of the city lies completely in ruins and buried under great masses of earth and frightful crevices in the ground, 
and in all this expanse of utter desolation there is seen no grass, herb, tree, or plant produced by nature, but only mountainous heaps of stone, some raw, that is, unworked, others worked and carved, looking all like it was overthrown, perhaps by some earthquake. Opposite this plaza, there runs very swiftly a most deep and wide river, with spacious banks that were very pleasing to the eye. It was eleven to twelve fathoms in width, without reckoning the windings, cleared and bared at its bank of groves, as of trees, and of the trunks that are often brought down in the floods. We sounded its depths, and found the deepest parts to be fifteen or sixteen fathoms. The country beyond consists wholly of very green and flourishing fields, and so blooming with a variety of flowers that it seemed as if nature, more attentive to these parts, had laid herself out to create the most beautiful gardens of flora. We gazed, too, in admiration and astonishment at certain lakes covered with wild rice plants from which we profited, and also at the innumerable flocks of geese that bred in these fertile plains, or campos. But it would have been difficult to sound their depths with the hand, in the absence of a sounding rod. Three days we journeyed down the river, and we stumbled on a cataract, or waterfall, of such roaring noise and commotion of foaming waters, that we supposed the mouths of the much-talked-of Nile could not have made more trouble or booming, or offered more resistance to our further progress. Afterwards, the river spreads out so much from this cascade that it appears to be a great ocean. It is all full of peninsulas, covered with green grass, with groves of trees here and there. And here we found a variety of game, many created beings, without hunters, to hunt and chase them down. On the eastern side of this cataract we found various subterranean hollows and frightful holes, and made trial of their depths with many ropes, but after many attempts we were never able to plumb their depths. We found besides certain broken stones, and lying on the surface of the ground, thrown down, with bars of silver that may have been extracted from the mines, abandoned at the time. Among these caverns we saw some covered with a great flagstone, with the following figures cut into it, that suggest a great mystery, and they are as follows, and the manuscript faithfully copies the figures, which look a lot more like hieroglyphics. Thence, leaving that marvel, we went down to the banks of the river to see whether we could find gold, and without difficulty we saw on the surface of the soil a fine trail promising great riches, as well as gold, as of silver. We marveled that this place had been abandoned by those who had formerly inhabited it, for, with all our careful investigations and great diligence, we had met no person in this wilderness who might tell us of this deplorable marvel of an abandoned city, whose ruins, statues, and grandeur attested its former populousness, wealth, and its flourishing in the centuries past, whereas today it is inhabited by swallows, bats, rats, and foxes that, fed on the innumerable swarms of hen and geese, have become bigger than pointer dogs. The rats have the tails so short that they leap like fleas and do not run or walk, as they do in other places. At this place the band separated, and one company, joined by others, journeyed forward, and after nine days' long marchings saw, at a distance, on the bank of a great bay into which the river spreads, a canoe with some white persons, with long flowing black hair, dressed like Europeans. We fired a signal gunshot, but they escaped. They looked shaggy and wild, their hair was plaited, and they wore clothes. At this point all mention 
that inside one of the houses, Hoeo Antonio, the only person mentioned in the document, found a large gold coin. On one side was an image of a figure on his knees, and on the other side, a bow, crown, and an arrow. And here's where they mention that in the manuscript. One of our company named Hoeo Antonio found in the ruins of a house a piece of gold money of spherical shape greater than our Brazilian coin of 6400 race. On one side was an image or a figure of a kneeling youth. On the other, a bow, a crown, and an arrow of which coins we doubted not to have found many in the abandoned city since it was overthrown by an earthquake which gave no time, so sudden was its onset, to take away precious objects. But it needs a very powerful arm to turn over the rubbish accumulated in so many long years, as we saw. And again, I'll note about the coin. René Chabert, who studied Colonel Fawcett's city for years, claims there is only one gold coin that fit this description, the gold derrick. The gold derrick depicts King Darius of Persia, 521 to 486 B.C., as an archer kneeling with a bow, quiver, and spear. If this is the coin in question, how in the world did it find its way here to Brazil? There is only one plausible answer. The coin was brought here by traders from the Mediterranean region during a time when this majestic stone city was thriving with human activity. After several months of hard travel back eastward, they arrived at a small outpost on the San Francisco River. From there they made it back to Salvador with this documented account of their adventure, which was sent to the Viceroy, Don Luis Peregrino, who apparently did nothing with it. An amazed Colonel Fawcett, after reading this, found that 14 out of the 24 characters inscribed on the pillars and porticos recorded in the South American manuscript were identical with those he accidentally discovered in the jungle forest of Ceylon. When he got back to civilization, he took a copy of the inscriptions to the learned Sinhalese priest, who told him that the writing was a form of Ahsoka, of the old Ahsoka Buddhist, in a cipher which only those ancient priests understood. Experts surmise that the bizarre inscriptions record the catching, in time of great dearth or famine, of an immense treasure that would be thousands of years old. The mine mentioned in the old narrative is undoubtedly what they call today the lost mine of Muribeca. It may well have been discovered by, Ro by Roberio Diaz, who owned a rich silver mine somewhere in the interior of Brazil, worked by Indians, and rumored to be thousands of years old. Roberio Diaz's father was a half-Indian named Muribeca. He had inherited the mine from his father, a Portuguese man, and the survivor of a shipwreck who lived with a friendly Indian tribe and who later married an Indian woman. Although Diaz was very wealthy, he was nevertheless a commoner, and worse, a mestizo, a name given to someone whose blood is part Indian. One thing Diaz always wanted in life was a title, a certificate of nobility, and so he traveled to Madrid and proposed a deal to the King of Spain and Portugal at the time, Dom Pedro II. He offered the king all his riches from his splendid mines in return for the title of Marquis of the Mines. But Dom Pedro II refused. Instead, Diaz's certificate was sealed and ordered to be given to Diaz when the location of the mines were disclosed. But en route to the mines, Diaz convinced the ship's captain to open the orders before they reached Bahia. Much to his surprise and dismay, Diaz learned he was not to be the Marquis of the Mines after all. 
Contrary to what the king had promised, the sealed orders declared that the king had dispersed a military commission to the area with Diaz as captain. Understandably, Diaz refused to give up the location of the mines, and so was imprisoned in a dungeon in Salvador for two years, but still he refused to talk. Eventually, he was allowed to buy his freedom, and in 1622, he died. Fortunately, the secret location of the mines went to his grave with him. Many expeditions were launched to find these mines, and most never returned. What happened to Raposo and the other members of his expedition? Nobody knows. Supposedly, none of them were ever seen or heard from again. At the beginning of the First World War, Fawcett returned to Britain to serve with the Army as a reserve officer in the Royal Artillery, volunteering for duty in Flanders, and commanding an artillery brigade despite the fact that he was nearly 50 years of age. He was promoted from Major to Lieutenant Colonel on March 1, 1918, and received three mentions and dispatches from Douglas Haig in November of 1916. After the war, Fawcett returned to Brazil to study local wildlife and archaeology. In 1920, he made a solo attempt to search for Z, but had to end it after suffering from a fever and shooting his pack animal at Dead Horse Camp. As the years passed, Fawcett became increasingly obsessed with seeking out his modern-day El Dorado. He had been captivated by the discovery of Machu Picchu in Peru in 1911 by Hiram Bingham's expedition and was convinced that the Incas had warned numerous of their tribes to escape the impending destruction of the empire by escaping deeper in the rainforests of Brazil. Fawcett had found ancient artifacts buried far inland, had listened to legends told by natives, some legends which told of white Indians and stone-walled cities, and had found shards of pottery that were very similar to what had been found in Peru. He would speak to groups of potential investors. Quote, The central place I call Z. Our main objective is in a valley about 10 miles wide, and the lost city is on an eminence in the middle of it, approached by a barreled railway of stone. He launched two searches for it in the early 1920s, but was driven out of the jungle on both occasions by poor weather, fever, and exhaustion. It took more than three years of campaigning before he finally secured funding for a third mission. Despite warnings that he was taking off on a fool's errand, the 57-year-old explorer remained convinced that Z was lurking somewhere in the unexplored Mato Grosso region of Brazil. Fawcett had no shortage of volunteers for his final expedition, and he had turned down the likes of T.E. Lawrence, the famed adventurer known as Lawrence of Arabia, in favor of taking his 21-year-old son, Jack, who shared his near-religious zeal for the Z theory. Rounding out the party was Jack's best friend, Raleigh Rimmel, after loading up on mosquito netting, canned food, machetes, and other provisions, the trio set sail from New Jersey in January of 1925. We shall return, Fawcett vowed to reporters, and we shall bring back what we seek. Fawcett had been made an official newspaper correspondent, so every detail of this risky and difficult trip would be reported to a worldwide audience. The Fawcett expedition first sailed for Rio de Janeiro before trekking inland 1,000 miles across the Mato Grosso, three times the size of Texas, to the remote Amazonian outpost of Cuyababa, where they purchased pack animals and hired a pair of native guides. On April 20, 1925, they ventured into the jungle for the first time. 
Ahead of them lay a sweltering maze of dense undergrowth, piranha-infested rivers, and unmapped territory populated by hostile native tribes. During the expedition's early weeks, however, it was the insects that proved the most pressing threat. Swarming mosquitoes and blood-sucking gnats made sleep difficult and travel miserable, and Rimmel's foot became severely swollen from tick bites. Both Jack and the Colonel begged him to go back, but Rimmel wouldn't go. At this point they had enough mounts to spare to give him, but Jack's lifelong friend wouldn't leave him. Undeterred, Fawcett set a demanding pace of between 10 and 15 miles a day. During one leg, he got so far ahead of his young companions that he was forced to camp alone for a night. Moving further inland, they reached the friendly Bakeri camp in mid-May, where they were told by Bakeri chief Roberto that they would find a waterfall about three weeks' journey distant, the same waterfall that Fawcett knew was described in Manuscript 512, a waterfall mighty enough to be heard from five leagues away, and which featured a large upright rock with painted features on it, protected from the rushing waters. The waterfall served as a signpost for Z. Hiding beneath their waters, a glittering world of shining rocks protected by six-foot-long electric eels, if the native legends could be believed. The Bakari chief had traveled the distance to the falls with Fawcett and showed him an ancient cave covered with ancient writing, symbols which Fawcett speculated to have come from the ancient city of Atlantis, this probably arising from his teachings learned from Madame Blavatsky in Ceylon. In a side note, famous psychic Edgar Cayce prophesied that the Inca civilization was created by Atlanteans who had to escape their doomed island thousands of years ago. More about those ancient civilizations is available in our 1001 Casey interview in the episode titled The Casey Interviews Ancient Civilizations. At times, in these extremities, Fawcett would speak and write of the mission being a spiritual one. During a psychic reading with Madame Blavatsky, Fawcett had been told that his son Jack would be the reincarnation of a Buddhist holy man, that his son would have very special powers, that there would be a mole on the inside of his left foot when he was born, and that his toes would be irregularly shaped. According to Fawcett, all these predictions matched. And to some who have studied Fawcett and this last mission, it seems as though he was trying desperately to bring his son to the spiritual land of Z. It sounds batshit crazy, but you have to be crazy to make eight trips into the Amazon jungle, some lasting a year or more, in search of an ancient civilization. On May 29th, the team reached Dead Horse Camp, the spot where Fawcett had been forced to shoot his spent horse and call it quits during one of his earlier searches for Z. There, they unloaded their equipment and sent their guides back to Cuyaba. Before the natives left, Fawcett handed over the last of the expedition's dispatches to the last of the runners. Among them was a letter to his wife, Nina. Jack is well and fit and getting stronger every day, it read. You need have no fear of any failure. At that, the trio struck off into the bush alone. Fawcett had warned that his expedition would go dark once it entered uncharted territory, but by 1927, nearly two years had passed with no word from the colonel or his young companions. Newspapers that had previously hailed Fawcett as being impervious to the perils of the jungle began speculating that he was dead, and witnesses surfaced with bewildering rumors about his whereabouts. 
One man claimed Fawcett had gone native and was living in the jungle. Another that he was being held prisoner by Indians. Still another maintained that he had become chief of a tribe of cannibals along the Zingu River. Two years after Percy's disappearance, his wife Nina was still convinced that he was alive. In 1928, the Royal Geographical Society's George Miller Dyot launched the first expedition to search for Fawcett and his party. Dyot was equipped with two-way radios and made for sensational news. But when he emerged from the jungle, he was convinced that expedition had perished. He had no hard evidence and had been unable to locate any bodies. He had received credible evidence that Fawcett had been killed by bandits in the Mato Grosso, but knowing he had to press on further, he was talked into pursuing a native who claimed to have guided Fawcett much deeper into the jungle, and Dyot and his men followed him in, soon finding himself and his men in hostile territory, where two different tribes were each accusing each other of having killed Fawcett's group. Dyot was held captive by one of those tribes, and barely escaped with his life. There is consequently still no proof that the three explorers are dead, a defiant Nina Fawcett told reporters. She remained hopeful of her son and husband's return until her death. In the years since the Dyot expedition, the mystery surrounding Fawcett's disappearance has lured scores of other would-be rescuers and investigators into the Amazon. It's estimated by a few that as many as 100 of them have died in the jungle, and a few have followed in the explorer's footsteps by vanishing without a trace. Others say only one man died in pursuit of Fawcett's disappearance. The truth, probably somewhere, probably the truth, some, the truth, probably somewhere between the two. In 1937, a German woman named Martha Munnick claimed to have found a white native boy who was the son of Jack Fawcett, but that story broke down when his real parents surfaced and said the boy was an albino. Speaking of Germans living in Brazil, they numbered in the tens of thousands, and the stories are out there that it was to the jungles of Brazil that many escaping Nazis sought refuge and a new beginning after Hitler's regime came to a crashing end. There are pictures of swastika crosses at remote Nazi burial grounds located deep within the jungle, and a number of stories that seem to validate that they had begun a new totalitarian society in the far reaches of the Amazon jungle. Another story for another time. As recently as 1996, a team of Fawcett hunters led by a wealthy businessman named James Lynch was captured by Amazonian Indians and held for ransom. They only escaped with their lives after giving up $30,000 worth of equipment. Then there was Fawcett's signet ring, which turned up in a Mato Grosso shop in 1979, where shopkeeper Vincente Grisola claimed he had gotten the ring from Fawcett on an earlier mission in exchange for his guide services. Or was it in exchange for the sale of some mules? He couldn't remember. A wildlife biologist and Fawcett mystery sleuth named Brian Rideout did some digging and found some shady characters involved with the ring. He also contacted Nina, and she told him that, no, Percy wore that ring on his final expedition and would not have traded it. Percy's theodolite compass was also discovered in nearly perfect condition within days of Dead Horse Camp. It is possible that it was stolen and then abandoned, except that it showed no signs of weathering. From 1930 to 1931, Aloha Wanderwell used her seaplane to try to land on the Amazon River in the Mato Grosso to find him. After an emergency landing and living with the Bororo tribe for six weeks, 
Aloha and her husband Walter flew back to Brazil with no luck. A 1951 expedition unearthed human bones that were found later to be unrelated to Fawcett or his son and companion. Danish explorer Arne Falk Rhone journeyed to the Mato Grosso during the 1960s. In a 1991 book, he wrote that he learned of Fawcett's fate from Orlando Villas Boas, who had heard it from one of Fawcett's murderers. Allegedly, Fawcett and his companions had a mishap on the river and lost most of the gifts they'd brought along for the Indian tribes. Continuing without gifts was a serious breach of protocol since the expedition members were all more or less seriously ill at the time. The Calapalo tribe they encountered decided to kill them. The bodies of Jack Fawcett and Raleigh Rimmel were thrown into the river, according to that story. Colonel Fawcett, considered an old man and therefore distinguished, received a proper burial. Falk Roan visited the Calopelo tribe and reported that one of the tribesmen confirmed Vilas Boas's story about how and why Fawcett had been killed. In 1951, that same Orlando Vilas Boas, activist for indigenous peoples, supposedly received the actual remaining skeletal bones of Fawcett and had them analyzed scientifically. The analysis allegedly confirmed the bones to be Fawcett's, but his son Brian Fawcett refused to accept this. Bias Boas claimed that Brian was too interested in making money from books about his father's disappearance. Later, scientific analysis confirmed that the bones were not Fawcett's. As of 1965, the bones reportedly rested in a box in the flat of one of Vias Boas's brothers in Sao Paulo. In 1998, English explorer Benedict Allen went to talk to the Calapalo Indians, said by Vias Boas to have confessed to having killed the three Fawcett expedition members. An elder of the Calapalo, Vajuvi, claimed during a filmed BBC interview with Allen that the bones found by V.S. Boas some 45 years before were not really Fawcett's. Vajuvi also denied that his tribe had any part in the Fawcett's disappearance. No conclusive evidence supports either statement. In 2003, a Russian documentary film, The Curse of the Inca's Gold, The Expedition of Percy Fawcett to the Amazon. Among other things, the film emphasizes the recent expedition of Oleg to the presumed approximate place of Fawcett's last whereabouts and Aliyev's findings, impressions, and presumptions about Fawcett's fate. On the 21st of March, 2004, the British newspaper The Observer reported that television director Misha Williams, who had studied Fawcett's private papers, believed that Fawcett had not intended to return to Britain but rather meant to found a commune in the jungle based on theosophical principles and the worship of his son Jack. Williams explained his research in some detail in the preface to his play Amazonia, that being with a capital Z, first performed in April 2004. What really happened to the Fawcett expedition? Researchers have blamed its disappearance on everything from malaria and parasitic infection to starvation, drowning, jaguar attacks, attacks by bandits, or murder by natives. Some have even argued that Fawcett, a longtime dabbler in mysticism, vanished on purpose, as we just related, and set up an occult commune in the jungle. A rare clue surfaced in 2005 when the journalist David Gran retraced Fawcett's path through the Amazon. During a meeting with the Calapalo Indians, he learned that the tribe had preserved the tale of a meeting with the explorer in their oral history. 
the Indians claimed Fawcett had disregarded their warnings and trekked into the domain of a warlike tribe the Calapalos called the Fierce Indians. When the white men failed to return, the Calapalos concluded that they had been ambushed and killed. The Calapalo have an oral story of the arrival of three explorers, which states that the three went east, and after five days, the Calapalo noticed that the group no longer made campfires. The Calapalo say that a very violent tribe most likely killed them. However, both of the younger men were lame and ill when last seen, and there is not any proof that they were murdered. It is plausible that they died of natural causes in the Brazilian jungle. Fawcett's fate may never be known for sure, but in recent years, evidence has shown that his theory about a sophisticated jungle city was not a total fantasy. As Graham points out in his book, The Lost City of Z, the book that inspired the movie, many archaeologists now believe the Amazon was home to dozens of bustling settlements in the centuries before the arrival of Europeans. Excavations have revealed the ruins of garden cities with earthen defensive walls, complex road networks, and enough space for thousands of inhabitants. Some of these sites are nestled deep in the modern-day state of Mato Grosso, the very region where Percy Fawcett hoped to find his mythical city of Z. I saw the movie on Netflix, and the story and filming are excellent. It's not an action movie. It's a movie that does portray the Victorian age of discovery, the hardships of mapping and exploring the Amazon, and it follows Fawcett's last journey, leaving it up to us to decide what really happened. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Stay tuned for a bonus episode of 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales to follow this brief announcement. As you've already heard, lots of changes going on this week as we open up all the back episodes to all listeners and start doing bonus episodes here at 1001 Heroes. I'm asking each and every one of you to do one thing for us this week, and that's to talk a friend or co-worker into downloading 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast on whatever device they're using. If they don't have a host, try Overcast.fm. That's www.overcast.fm. It's simple to use, easy, and it's a good podcast host site. I'll keep the good shows coming. Thanks, and thanks for being supportive fans. Okay, here's 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Our story today, George Washington's Boyhood Rules. It's a story about young George Washington, and it's from Josephine Pollard's book, The Life of George Washington, in words of one syllable, written in 1893. Washington wrote these rules in his notebook when he was only 13 years old. They consist of 110 rules which were to guide him in act and speech at home and abroad. He had set about as a young boy to train himself and fit himself for the high place he knew he would someday fill. His soul was fixed on high things 
and he chose to be led by his Christian conscience. His rules are remarkably well thought out and remain as a standard of behavior today. Here are some of the rules that George Washington took as the guide of his youth. In the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. Sleep not when others speak. Sit not when others stand. Speak not when you should hold your peace. Walk not when others stop. Turn not your back to others when speaking. Jog not the table or desk on which another reads or writes. Lean not on anyone. Read no letters, books, or papers in company. But when there is a need for doing it, you must ask leave. Come not near the books or writings of anyone so as to read them, unless asked to do so, nor give your opinion of them unasked. Also, don't look over someone's shoulder when they're writing a letter. In writing or speaking, give to each person his due title according to his rank and the custom of the place. When a man does all he can, though it succeeds not well, blame not him that did it. Be slow to believe evil reports of anyone. Be modest in your dress and seek to suit nature rather than to win admiration. Keep to the fashion of your equals, such as are civil and orderly with respect to time and place. Play not the peacock, looing all about you to see if you be well decked, if your shoes fit well, your stockings sit neatly, and your clothes handsomely. Make friends with those of good character, if you care for your own reputation, for it is better to be alone than in bad company. Speak not of doleful things in time of mirth, nor at the table. Speak not of mournful things, as death and wounds, and if others mention them, change, if you can, the discourse. Utter not base and foolish things, amongst grave and learned men, nor hard questions or subjects among the ignorant nor things hard to be believed. Be not forward, but friendly and courteous, the first to salute, hear, and answer, and be not pensive when it is time to converse. Gaze not on the marks or blemishes of others, and ask not how they came. Think before you speak. Pronounce not imperfectly, nor bring out your words too hastily, but orderly and distinctly. Treat with men at fit times about business, and whisper not in the company of others. Be not curious to know the affairs of others, nor go near to those who speak in private. Undertake not to do what you cannot perform, but be careful to keep your promise. Speak not evil of the absent, for it is unjust. Make no show of taking great delight in your food. Feed not with greediness. Cut your bread with a knife. Lean not on the table, neither find fault with what you eat. When you speak of God, let it be gravely and in reverence. Honor and obey your parents, although they be poor. Let your amusements be manful, not sinful. Labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll see you next week. <music>